when we began the study, I warned you we were going to need to look through a different cultural lens than we were used to if we were going to get Hebrews. That is nowhere more evident than in chapters 7 and 8, where our author introduces the important theme of Jesus' priesthood. Um, we don't know much about priests and priesthood. The idea that ours is a priestly faith has never even occurred to some of us. In America, we know a lot more about lawyers than we do about priests. Something like 15 million lawsuits will be filed this year in state courts around the country. That works out to approximately one lawsuit for every 12 adults in the United States. Lawyers are familiar. Priests are not. But Hebrews is about the priesthood. And it's about the priesthood because Christianity is about the priest, the priest. Chapter 8 begins in Greek with a word that means the main point. Let's read through the first five verses. The point of what we're saying is this. I'm going to try to stand like really, really still today and not move. The point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle, set up by the Lord, not by man. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest. There are already men who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. That's why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Our author feels after seven chapters that we are finally ready for his main point. The point of what we're saying, verse 1, is this, we do have such a high priest. The word such refers back to that same word in verse 26 of chapter 7. This chapter and the next two, 8, 9, and 10, are the heart of this letter. And they are all about Jesus' present ministry as our high priest. We often think of Jesus' past ministry our author thinks of his present ministry. In chapter 8, he is the superior high priest because he operates from a superior covenant. More about that in a minute. In chapter 9, he's the superior high priest because he operates in a superior sanctuary. And then in chapter 10, he's the superior high priest because he's offered a superior sacrifice. From numerous hints in this letter, we can be fairly certain the original readers were being pushed and pulled by outside forces toward a Christless religion. They had been bombarded by questions from concerned, not to mention angry, family members and friends. How could they be forgiven if they didn't offer sacrifices for sin? And how could they offer sacrifices if they didn't have a priest? And what would they do on the Day of Atonement, the holiest day of the year, without a high priest? Without a priest, our author takes umbrage at that. If you belong to Jesus, you have a priest. In fact, 
you have a high priest who is superior in every way to the priests in Jerusalem. He is just the sort of high priest we need, verse 26, holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. You can't say that about the high priest in Jerusalem or any other priest. Jesus is superior by his very nature in the light of who he is, but he's also superior by position in the light of where he is. He is, verse 1, at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven where he is said to have sat down. It is a curious detail that our high priest is said to have sat down. The priests in the earthly tabernacle never sat down. There weren't any chairs in the tabernacle on which to sit. Perhaps because the priest's work of offering sacrifices for sin was never done. Every day brought new sins and new sacrifices. But Christ offered one sacrifice for all time and was finished. And so he sat down. We'll see more about that in the next two chapters. Unlike the high priest in Jerusalem, our high priest serves, verse 2, in the sanctuary. That is, in the true tabernacle in heaven. The Greek of verse 2 is something like, is a servant... Uh, the, it's not a verb, serves, but a noun, is a servant. Litergos in Greek, uh, from which we get our word liturgist, someone who reads and composes a liturgy for a church service. In Hebrews, that word is only used of priests. He is a servant in the holy places, not in a small country church, not even in a big city cathedral, but in heaven itself, in the true holy place, in the very presence of God. In verse 3, our author seems to state a commonplace. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And so it was necessary for this high priest, Jesus, also to have something to offer. It's just like our author to introduce an idea. He's done this over and over again. Introduce an idea and then just let it sit there for a while before explaining it. He'll explain what he has in mind in detail when we get to chapter 9, verse 13. In fact, the theme from chapter 9, verse 13 through chapter 10, verse 18, is this something Jesus had to offer. But for now, he's just going to set it out there and be satisfied to state the obvious. A priest, by the very nature of his work, must have something to offer. Now he goes on in verse 4. If he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest. For there are already men who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. When Jesus was on earth, he didn't fulfill the function of a priest. Though he often was in Jerusalem visiting the temple, he never offered sacrifices there. See, Jewish priests could only come from the family of Aaron and the ancient priestly tribe of Levi. But Jesus came from the family of David and the ancient kingly tribe of Judah. So our author says that he would not be a priest on earth. In fact, the Greek is strong. It's something like not even be a priest. He would not be a priest on earth because his lineage was not what the law required. But I think there was another reason. On earth, he was not a priest. He was a sacrifice. In heaven, he is not a sacrifice he is a priest. 
There's something else in this verse I want us to, to note, something about God I don't want us to miss. But let me introduce it with a, a, a story. 20 years or so ago, not long after I came here, I made acquaintance with a truck driver. And we talked a few times about things that were going on in his life. He was going through some difficult times. I liked him, but he was one of those guys who didn't want anybody to tell him what to do. He knew how everything ought to be, and he did everything his own way. It had only been, back then, a few years since seatbelt legislation had passed in Michigan, and he was still upset about it. He was not going to wear a seatbelt. So what he did was come up with something that would fool police officers into thinking he was wearing a seatbelt. I'm sure it took him more time and energy than it would just to buckle his belt, but he, he felt like the law didn't apply to him. I've recently read about a man in New Zealand where it's been the law to wear seatbelts since 1972 who reminded me of my truck driver friend. This fellow was ticketed 32 times in five years for failure to wear a seatbelt. But even though his stubbornness was costing him a lot of money, he refused to buckle up. Instead, he did just what my friend did. He made a fake seatbelt that just kind of hung over his shoulder to fool the police, and that worked fine until he was in a head-on collision and died. Both my friend and that man thought themselves exempt from the law. And, of course, every little tyrant around the world thinks himself above the law. But consider the remarkable restraint of God. He keeps his own rules. When God the Son came to earth, king and priest in the order of Melchizedek, he did not qualify by the laws he enacted to serve as a priest. But surely he could exempt himself from his own rules? But he didn't. If anyone was ever truly above the law, it was him. But he kept his own rules. This is true of God generally, not just in the priesthood. As Dorothy Sears pointed out, whatever game he's playing with his creation, he's kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact, she wrote, nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience, from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He played by the rules. That's what our God is like. Verse 5. They, the Levitical priests, serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what's in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Once again, our author is introducing an idea to his readers that he will only later explore in depth. In chapter 9, he's going to go into greater detail about the heavenly sanctuary in which Jesus offers priestly service. But here he's just supporting this contention that we have a high priest who is superior, superior because of who he is, high priest in the order of Melchizedek, and superior because of where he serves in the heavenly sanctuary itself, and superior, now this is verse 6, because of the covenant under which he operates. But the ministry Jesus received 
is as superior to theirs, the Levitical priests, as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, is founded on better promises. Covenant is another one of those ideas that is not all that familiar to us. A covenant is the strongest agreement two parties can make. In ancient cultures, everyone understood covenant. Covenant was always ratified with a sacrifice and celebrated with a meal. There were terms given and terms accepted, and a sign of the covenant was established. That may not sound familiar to us, but there is a covenant in our contemporary setting, though we probably don't think of it as such. It's the covenant of marriage. It is, or at least it ought to be, the strongest agreement two parties can make. Terms are given and accepted. We call them marriage vows. And a sign is established, usually a ring on the fourth finger of the left hand. There's even a sacrifice, though we often overlook it or fail to make it. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We aren't all that familiar with the concept of covenant, but the first readers of this letter were. They knew that God had entered into covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai, but that old covenant failed, not because it was inherently faulty, but because the people, verse 8 now, did not remain faithful to it. Literally, they didn't stay in it. The old covenant told them what to do, but it didn't help them do it. And so another covenant was necessary. Now look at verses 8 through 11. They describe that other covenant in the language of the prophet Jeremiah. In fact, these words come directly from Jeremiah chapter 31, and they form the longest Old Testament quote in the New Testament. If you ever get on Jeopardy, you may need to know that. But God found fault with the people and said, and here's the quote, The time is coming, declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. These are the terms of the new covenant. The covenant Jesus spoke of when he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Remember, there's always a sacrifice that ratifies the covenant. It was to this covenant that Paul referred, he has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. And God promised this covenant when he said, this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Our author says that this new covenant, verse 6, is superior to the old one, and it's founded on better promises. But what are the promises, and why are they better? 
In the Old Covenant, God's laws were written on stone, remember, and placed in the Ark of the Covenant, that just means the box of the covenant, the box the covenant was kept in, inside the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. But in the New Covenant, God's laws aren't written on stone. And they're not put in a box. Verse 10, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. The Old Covenant came with external demands. The New Covenant came with the promise of internal change. The Old Covenant stated God's standards. The New Covenant provides the power to meet those standards. It's this power Peter had in mind when he wrote, His, God's divine power, has given us everything we need for life and godliness, even participation in the divine nature. That's the first better promise of the new covenant. The second one has to do with God's knowledge of us. He knows us inside and out. But under the terms of the old covenant, people didn't know him. Even on the day the old covenant was first given, we read that the people remained at a distance. They said to Moses, you talk to God for us. But the better promise is that everyone who enters into the new covenant will know God from the least of them to the greatest, will know God. The old covenant, here's the third thing that's better about the new covenant than the old, provided rituals to repeat over and over again for sin. The new covenant provided lasting forgiveness. Verse 12, I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Internal change, real lasting forgiveness, a personal relationship with God himself. These are the better promises on which the new covenant was founded. Now, there's something else. I think an implied promise in the new covenant to which I want to call your attention. Let me do that by one more contrast between it and the old covenant. The old covenant emphasized the words, you will, if you will follow my decrees and are careful to obey my commands. And there was also the if you will not. The old covenant was conditioned on people taking responsibility. If you will. But the new covenant emphasizes the words I will. In the new covenant, God takes responsibility. It's conditioned on his faithfulness, not ours. God says, this is the covenant I will make. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God. Three times in one verse, five times in verses 8 through 12, God says, I will, I will, I will, I will. He loves his son so much that he takes responsibility for his son's people's well-being. This covenant is new, as verse 13 makes clear. There are two words in Greek for new, two Greek words, Kairos, which means new in time, and kainos, which means new in kind. New in time, new in kind. Uh, I have a pen in my pocket. It, it may be new, right out of the package, never before used. But it's not new in kind. There are 10 million more of them around. Some of you have this same pen. So a Greek writer would use the word new in time of this pen, not new in kind. But suppose someone invented a pen that would automatically improve handwriting, I'd buy it. <laughs> and In fact, the office would buy it for me and make sure I use it. 
<clears throat> the Greek word for that would be new in kind. Kainos. That's the word we have here. The covenant is new in kind. There's never been another one like it. It's the best deal in the world. But it's only for those who belong to Jesus Christ. It is a superior covenant for a superior priest. I once had a piano over at the house with some keys that stuck and some other ones that were permanently off pitch. One day when the piano tuner was here, I had him come over to my house to look at it, and he looked at it for a few minutes and said, there's nothing I can do. He said, I can tune it, but it's not going to hold its tune. So I kept it. I mean, I, I had it, so I still played it. And, you know, it was okay for a hack like me to mess around with. But Jeannie or Bev Dole, they wouldn't want to play a piano like that. They need something better so that people could benefit from their ability. For our high priest, the old covenant, aging and obsolete, would never do. For someone like him, holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens, only the glorious new covenant could serve. But that's not all. For someone like us, tempted, weak, and broken, the old covenant wouldn't do either. We needed more. And we have more. We have, verse 2, a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven as the mediator of the new and everlasting covenant. Now let's pray. I pray that you will show us what we have. The riches of our glorious inheritance. Teach us to count on our high priest and rejoice in him. Lord, you've blessed us with all the blessings of the heavenlies. Don't let us live like paupers. Do this for the sake of the Son you love, our Lord Jesus Christ.